I think till the last day, we didn't believe that it would happen. You, you don't believe it. It's like you, you think about the world you live in and someone will tell you it won't exist. It, it's just something you can't like uh, imagine. It was with a heavy heart that the government of Israel made the decision regarding disengagement. On February 16th, 2005, an unusually tense session was underway at the Israeli Knesset. Arik Sharon, Israel's Prime Minister at the time, had decided to bring his highly contentious plan to a vote. And Speaker of the House Rubi Rivlin, now of course our President, was having a hard time controlling the Assembly. It is no secret that I, like many others, believed and hoped that we could forever hold on to Netzarim and Kfardarom. However, the changing reality in this country, in the region and the world required another reassessment and changing of positions. Gaza cannot be held onto forever. Sharon's plan to unilaterally withdraw from the Gaza Strip and four isolated settlements in northern Samaria was explosive. It triggered an unprecedented public debate, full of raw emotion, that split the nation. Roughly two-thirds of Israelis supported the plan, including the leader of the opposition, Shimon Peres. But there was also tremendous resistance. Eager to lower the flames, the government coined its plan the disengagement, as if saying that Israel was the more mature child in a schoolyard squabble, simply walking away from a pointless fight. On the other hand, those staunchly opposed to the idea came up with a name of their own, Hagirush, or the expulsion, and mounted massive nationwide protests. We will refuse to allow the soldiers to come and drive us away by force if they'll try. Some politicians on the right, and certain leaders of the settler movement, called for civil disobedience and urged soldiers to defy direct orders. As the date of the operation approached, the opposition intensified. In July, 130,000 people formed a human chain from Gaza to Jerusalem. In the weeks and days before the scheduled eviction, Thousands of people rushed to the Israeli settlements in Gaza in a Hail Mary attempt to block, or at least delay, the removal. The entire country was holding its breath. Doomsday prophets talked about an impending civil war and the end of Zionism. Everywhere you looked you saw orange flags and banners and stickers, the official color of the anti-disengagement movement. Popular singer Ariel Zilberg composed a catchy anthem. A Jew does not expel a Jew, does not expel a Jew, does not expel a Jew. And over 1,000 teenage girls assembled in Neved Kalim for a last-minute lamentation. 
יולי אדלשטיין נגד, יעקב אדרי, בעד, אהוד אולמרט. But all ultimately to no avail. The plan had passed with bipartisan support, and was now on the verge of implementation. Army and police forces had amassed right outside Gaza, and awaited orders to begin the evacuation. Good evening and welcome to IBA News, broadcasting from Jerusalem. The disengagement has begun. Thousands of IDF troops and police officers entered Gaza settlements this morning to hand out eviction notices to local residents. They were met by hundreds of defiant settlers and their supporters who swore they will not leave. Many of you probably remember the sounds and sights of the disengagement. I know I do. I had just finished my first year at university and received a summer grant to go to Gush Katif. That's what the Israeli settlements in Gaza were called and document the events. So I was there, in Neved Kalim, the so-called capital of the Gush, and witnessed many moments like this one. This Torah scroll was dedicated in memory of my wife's grandparents, who were murdered in the Holocaust. It was written by family members and residents of our settlement, according to the instructions of Rabbi Kamenetsky. My family and I are taking it into our custody. Regardless of whether or not you identified with the settlers, the emotions were intense. Look, what can I say? I was in the army for 42 years. This is General Gershon Kohen, the IDF commander put in charge of the whole operation. I fought in the Yom Kippur War in Lebanon, in many other battles. But the disengagement, those final moments when the synagogue in Devei de Kalim was evacuated, really shook me to my core. Even if our houses are demolished, the spirit that has been built here over the last 24 years will remain forever. This Torah scroll will accompany us wherever we go. Because if there's one thing this ordeal has taught us, it's that if there's no Torah, there's nothing at all. All you wonderful kids sitting here, you must remember, our struggle is not to preserve walls. We're fighting to save our spirit. And with the grace of God, in this battle, the battle for spirit, we've won big and we'll keep on winning. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Last episode, we told the story of Abdel Nasser Musle, an Arabian horse breeder from Kafar Aqab in the West Bank. And today we bring you another equine tale, yet one of a very different nature. Our episode today, The Princess, will take us back 15 years to those hot and dramatic days of August 2005. But it's not a story about politics, ramifications, lessons learned, or open wounds. 
Instead, it's the story of one woman, Hodaya Zulai, and her search for a home and for a sense of belonging. But even more than that, it's the story of the deep friendship between Hodaya and her beloved white mare, Shelig. A friendship that endured pain, uncertainty, and betrayal. Yochai Meital, who will take it from here, was, at the time of the disengagement, a young officer on a weirdly private mission. And he first heard the story as it was unfolding, in the midst of all the chaos. Here's Yochai. Ah, here. Wow. This is... This is Shelik. Wow, she's beautiful. Yeah, she's very beautiful. With like an Arab horse, you know, like Arab horses are very beautiful. I feel like I should say right from the start that my connection to this story is personal. I can't completely separate myself from the events that took place. At the time of the disengagement, my sister and her family were living in the settlement of Nitzarim, a Jewish enclave three kilometers south of Gaza City. My sister was the village doctor, and since this was a time of countless bombings, shellings, and roadside booby trappings, I was constantly worried for her safety and for the safety of my nieces and nephews. For several years prior to the disengagement, transportation to and from Nitzarim was permitted only with armed military escorts. I hated the thought of my nieces and nephews going to school in armored trucks. When talk of the disengagement began, it seemed like everyone around me instantaneously formed a clear opinion in support of or in opposition to the move. I, however, was confused and conflicted. On the one hand, I was happy that my family would be put out of harm's way. But I also knew how devastated my sister would be. It was hard for me to fully get behind a plan that would force her out of the life she had spent years building, casting her into an unknown future. No one knew what would become of the incredibly tight-knit and caring community she and her friends had formed. For them, this was an epic tragedy, and it was hard to be happy about that. I was an officer in the IDF at the time, and thankfully my unit was not involved in the disengagement. Still. On August 22, 2005, the day Nitzarim was evacuated, I called my sister and asked if there was anything I could do. She said that a friend of hers needed help transporting her belongings. I asked my commander if I could borrow a truck and take the day off. To my astonishment, he actually agreed. And that's how, a few hours later, I found myself in the middle of one of the last convoys headed towards Nitzarim. It was then that I first met my sister's friend, Odea. <laughs> that was a bad day. I worked through the night with one of her sons, packing up the house and loading everything onto my truck. Meanwhile, Odea was busy running around chasing animals. At dawn, I drove back to Israel and have never returned to Gaza since. In the intervening years, Odea has moved more than a dozen times. Her current home, what she hopes will be her final stop, is in a West Bank settlement overlooking Nablus. You might think that following the experience of living in a war zone, Odea would have chosen to settle down in a quiet place. But instead, she lives in Givat Alumot, an offshoot of a settlement called Itamar. 
Itamar is known as one of the most hardcore and ideological settlements. When I arrived, Hodaya was standing outside her caravan, waving. She immediately took me to look at the stunning biblical view. Over the years, there have been many violent clashes with the neighboring Palestinians. In 2011, terrorists from the nearby village of Awarta massacred the Fogel family in their sleep. The Fogels, by the way, had also been evicted from Nitzavim. The day before I came to interview Hodaya, mass settlers were filmed hurling stones at Palestinian farmers and left-wing Israeli activists. But now, other than the occasional sound of jets and drones in the air, all seemed peaceful. We walked back to the caravan and sat at a picnic table outside under a canopy of dry palm branches. Hodeya poured me some water and offered me some cake. Then she pulled out a photo album with old pictures of her time in Itzarim and flipped to a picture of Shelik, her favorite mare, a large white Arabian horse with a flowing white mane and tail. In the picture, a young boy is riding on Shelik's back. A friend who climbed up on a barrel to be at the same height is pointing at him. You see that it's uh, nice. Both kids are laughing. It looks like a scene from a fairy tale. They, for example, they were always fighting. Mm-hmm. And, and then I put them together on the horse. Okay, fight. Great luck. So they got friends. You see them? Wow, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So that was so nice. Everything was very simple at Zerim. And, mm-hmm. and children were so, um, you know, satisfied from easy, simple things. Yeah. Um, but this fairy tale of a religious settler, it starts in an unlikely place. Can I ask you what your name was before? Ines. Ines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was born in East Germany. Come from really atheistic home. I'm born in 66, so really in the East German, you know, with all the communist ideology. And uh, at that time, for example, like if you just stand together two people with the same symbol. It's already a illegal demonstration. People were like arrested within seconds. Despite growing up in such anti-religious surroundings, it was ironically the church that offered her a safe haven, a shelter from the prying eye of the state. It was there in youth group meetups that she could openly hear and discuss new ideas. There you could speak and like think that you do things. It was very young. I was like 18 years old. And that was the same time I got married. That was also one way to just (laughs) move out. The young couple eloped and moved out to the countryside. It's like a really beautiful place in Thuringia. A little village with like, they had a lot of halflinger horses. Ines found work on a farm, tending to chestnut-colored, blonde-maned halflinger horses, a hardy Austrian breed. You had to take care of them and, like, uh, foals and everything. For Ines, it was a perfect and peaceful existence. She had loved horses ever since she was a young girl. It's like great energy. You together, it's some harmony with the horse. Like conversation, you were like a team. Soon, Ines got pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when he was one year old, I was pregnant with the second one. Things seemed headed in the right direction, but this idyllic life didn't last long. My like first husband, he 
suddenly accident that's it her husband got into a car accident and was killed on the spot for Ines who was just starting her adult life starting a family a career everything screeched to a halt I was 20 years old and with a child one year old <laughs> and with a second in the middle of pregnancy so it was like ah, you know I moved back to Chemnitz, where we were from, and... Left the horses. I left, I left everything, of course. Like I had two little children to take care of. That was one thing which really, like, uh, was very shaking, you know? So I started again to think about faith and about what's meaning of life, what is left. I got a little bit into the church, you know, but I never learned it. I got to a point that I understood there is Boreolam, you know, there is a, a creator. And for me, it was clear, but I never learned Christianity. One day, on a weekend retreat with her church, the pastor led a discussion about faith. So he asked us about, like, do certain things, what, what does it mean for us? As people started scribbling down their thoughts, Ines sat quietly, searching her soul for answers. When they were all done, they each shared their views with the group. As she read her response, the pastor's head suddenly jerked up. And he's suddenly like, you, you don't think as a Christian at all. You think like a Jew. You think like a Jew. It was just a thought that popped in his mind. Not something he meant to bear any kind of negative connotation. And Ines did not receive it that way either. I said, wow, that's very interesting. In fact, the pastor's offhand comment stayed with her. It stirred something inside her, and she wanted to get to the bottom of those feelings, to understand where this was all coming from. Not knowing the first thing about Judaism, she went over to the local library and checked out some books about the basic tenets. As she read, things felt oddly familiar. It was like, wow, I knew it. I just had to be remembered of it, you know? It was that it was something that's, that's what I am, you know? When my husband died, it was 87 and 89, the wall came down. Die they are here in the thousands, they are here in the tens General of Secretary thousands. Secretary Gorbachev, open this gate. And there were all these changes. If, if there is someone who sleeps for eight weeks and you told him what happened here, he thinks you are crazy. I was out of work, so I went to the Archion Archive. Archive of the city to try to find out of the, about the Jewish community, which was before the war. It was very interesting. They had their material which nobody could see before because they didn't give it out, you know. So a lot of things, I was the first one to see it. With that, I got connection to the Jewish community in Chemnitz, which was back then a very small one, like 
10, 12 people, all people who were survivors. And the Jewish community back there, they were very suspicious. They didn't want it so much to have to. But they saw, you know, from what I did and things like that I'm fine. Ines's fascination with Judaism sparked an interest in Hebrew and everything related to Israel. You didn't have internet back then, nothing, you know. I found a book like more than 100 years old with the old Hebrew, so I taught myself Hebrew from that. I bought a little radio, you know, like it was the beginning that I understood a little bit Hebrew and I put a little radio. And when I was standing on the balcony and it was in the winter with the the coat and the like uh, head and with the foot, you know, like on the balcony. And I, I, there was a certain point I could stand and I could make like that. <laughs> I could catch the frequency of Israel. I would hear the alarm, you know, going on in Israel and it was like... <sighs> She felt forces greater than herself pulling her towards Israel. But she was conflicted. My children were like some five, six years old. And I was very mixed up what to do, you know. Like uh, I knew that inside me, I want to, uh, I want to keep halacha and I want all the Judaism. On the other hand, there were the parents of my husband. They were there and they were helping us and children were very connected to them. Well, what to do, you know, like to, to take the children and to do that or not. As a single mother, she knew that her personal spiritual transformation would directly impact her sons. Would she be doing the right thing by taking them along for the ride? While she grappled with this dilemma, something happened that she took to be a sign. One night, she was driving with a friend in a cheap East German car. Trabant, you know, it was like, <laughs> it was like <laughs> very unhealthy in accidents, you know. Her friend's two girls and Ines's two boys were all sleeping peacefully in the back. They were driving down a winding country road when a drunk driver approached them, head on, swerving between the lanes. You had no way to escape him. You were scared to death, more than us, the children. And I started to read to say Shema Israel. At the very last second, they managed to pull over to the shoulder. We came out like we were all shaking, shaking, shaking. But afterwards, I got it, you know, I, I got it. I said, wow. I think I have to convert mm-hmm. to do the jump, you know. She bought three tickets and flew with her kids to Israel. I had such a, <laughs> I had such a <laughs> funny thought that I thought I could go to the kibbutz, you know, because I was agriculture. I could work with cows and with horses, and you know, like nobody wanted us. Everyone told us no, 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 because I had children. You know, if I would have been alone, it was another thing, you know, like, but with children, like, it's for them too uh, expensive to take some, like, okay, okay, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. As she tells her story, Hodaya uses that phrase, Baruch Hashem, praise God, often and in places I find surprising. In her eyes, every obstacle is an intentionally placed personal lesson from God. Every hardship, 
a sign. Back then, she was staying with her kids in a cheap hotel in Jerusalem. Out of ideas, and with a tourist visa about to expire, she stepped outside for a walk to weigh her options. I went in the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem. There's a Chova Yehudim. There's a Chabad place. They have all kinds of leaflets. She picked up one of the many leaflets and started reading. It was about how do you convert in Israel? It sounded so easy, you know? It sounded like really, you go to the Rabbanut, you open the file and you get the visa and uh, okay, you go ahead and you know, you convert. Not only that, they gave a list of rabbis who are willing always to help converts. Oh, I said, that's what I needed. (laughs) I took it. As many of you perhaps know, converting in Israel is not nearly that simple, nor is it that quick. For a year and a half, Ines studied Judaism at a seminary and worked illegally at a kindergarten before she even got an appointment with a rabbinical court. By then, her tourist visa had long expired. And it was already like, shaho, shaho, you know, like just illegal, illegal. She knew this would be her last chance. If I don't succeed to get converted now, I have to go back to Germany. I, I, can't, I can't stay in Israel anymore. She sat anxiously in the rabbi's waiting room with a bunch of other conversion hopefuls. People came out, we all, what did they ask, what did they ask? Finally, she was called in. I went in with my children, so we looked at all the, like, I had a lot of letters, and learning, and be like a bit of Knesset, where we were praying. That was before Purim, so we asked Salah Halachot of Purim. Then he said, okay, you from Germany? Do you see a difference between Germans and Jews, Gentiles and Jews. I said, no. He said, oh, no, that's very bad. You you can't convert like that. She immediately tried to walk back her impulsive answer. No, of course, there is a difference. Like the Jews were those who took on themselves the Torah. But it was too little, too late. In her mind, she had already flunked. So I started to cry. So he said... Go out, calm down. If you want, afterwards come in again. Ines sat outside the building for several hours, contemplating her future. She tried to calm down, to quiet her nerves. By evening time, the rabbinic court had already emptied out. One of the ushers who came out to lock the doors asked her if she wanted to go in again. Hesitantly, she answered, Okay. So I went again, and I, I was sure he would give me another question, right? So I was sitting down, he said just, no. <laughs> like, same question, come on, you know. But in the meantime, he went through my whole papers, and so he saw I would again go to pieces. So he said, Masalto. What's your name in Israel, you know? So I took Hodaya. Hodaya is the Hebrew word for gratefulness, which was the best way to describe what her heart was feeling at that moment. Grateful to finally reach the end of this long and arduous journey towards conversion. Grateful for being accepted, 
met my two children and they they got into good schools in Jerusalem and and they were really integrated if they wouldn't be so blonde you know nobody would think they're not born Israelis we did it We'll be right back. And now, back to the story of Hodaya Zulai, the young East German widow who moved to Israel with her two sons and had just managed, finally, to convert to Judaism. Here's Yochai. Hodaya and her boys settled into their new, calmer lives. Things were still difficult, of course. After all, she was a single mom without much of a social network or safety net. She continued to work long hours at a gun, a kindergarten, and to care for her young sons. But at least they were now here legally and no longer living in a state of perpetual uncertainty. But this is where our story takes an unexpected turn. A turn which brings us to Netzarim, the Gaza settlement where my sister and her family lived, and where years later and under dramatic circumstances, I first met Hodea. This friend I was working with in the gun. She had friends in Nazarim. That was that year when there was the Intifada. Nazarim was uh, really cut off. Mm-hmm. They could just get there by helicopter. And there was really big balagan there around. So on Sukkot, they opened again the road and you could go in. And so we said, she, like my friend, she's very, like, uh, very active. And uh, she said, yeah, let's go. And we do some activities for the children there. They were for two weeks there in a, like, craziness. So took the bus. First buses we went into Netzarim. We did some games and activities, some art, simple things we brought, you know. And they were also, they were so grateful, you know, they were so nice and so, wow, is the Yoffi, like they were so happy. So I said, okay, maybe I do such a thing. I try to come for Rosh Chodesh, every Rosh Chodesh. I will come and do for the children some activity for Rosh Chodesh. After several months of these regular visits, Odea began to develop an attachment to the place. And apparently the feeling was mutual. Just by chance, one of the Nitzarim kindergarten teachers was about to give birth, and the community was having a hard time finding a maternity leave replacement for her. After all, it was the middle of the second intifada, and Nitzarim was dealing with nearly daily shellings, sniper fire, RPGs being shot at convoys, and even terrorists trying to infiltrate homes. Everything you can think about, you know? The road was so problematic, and they had a lot of shooting there, and nobody was daring to come there from outside. So when Hodaya was offered the position, the locals didn't have high hopes she'd accept. And I said, you have to do that. Maybe, you know, you have to go and to help that gun go on. Because like women were all working, you know, your sister, like that was also something that I saw there in women. I was so, wow, you know, like all growing big families, working. I was so impressed. Hodeya decided to go for it, and despite all the obvious challenges, moved to Nitzarim. I worked there in the kindergarten, and that first summer I was with that other kindergarten teacher at Pachima. 
זיכרונה לברכה. Afterwards she got killed in a terror attack on a road in Gush Kativ. We did a kaitana, I will say it like a kindergarten. That first year, Hodaya and Eti ran a summer camp for the kids of Nitzarim. One of its biggest attractions was visiting the settlement's small petting zoo. A few rabbits, sheep, and goats. So we went there with the children to see, and like in the middle we were there with the goats. A rocket fell not far away from us, like maybe 100 meters, 150 meters. So we went into the dining room, and now we were there with some 60 children, you know, in an empty dining room, and they all like very... Um, excited shaken a little bit from that uh, explosion and we didn't have anything there to do with them so the only thing what was there there were a lot of white plastic chairs <laughs> like <laughs> so I had an idea I gave everyone a plastic chair and he said you see we all have white horses and we are now we go with the horses and we're riding the horses They were all sitting the other way around on the chairs. So we were going with the chairs and riding on the chairs. And like the children had the big herd of, of white horses. And it was like such a dream, such a prayer, you know, like that Hashem like was like uh, here these children, like they were so scared, the children from the missile, you know, like that afterwards we had really two white horses. The one who was uh, taking care of that little zoo said, wow, you worked with horses. If I would know that you stay, I would bring a horse. You know, that you help me to take care of the horse. So he brought a horse. And then another one. And then in the middle of the summer, he was leaving. He called me, he said, uh, I leave you the zoo. Bye. You know? <gasps> Odaya suddenly found herself alone in charge of the zoo. She quickly set out to work. Then we had sheep, goat, rabbits, uh, guinea pigs, hamsters, uh, dogs, ducks, ghosts. Hens, tortoise, uh, all kind of little snails. And, of course, two horses. The zoo quickly became a focal point for the entire community, especially for the children. The undisputed star of this menagerie was her white mare, Shelig, Hebrew for snow. I worked with a lot of horses in my life, like really with a lot of horses. This is a really special one. She was really understanding Hebrew. 
you could talk to her, <laughs> you know. And she was very communicative, you know. Like it was something, something very special. And she was very, very sensitive and very smart. She was very soft with children. But she loved to run, you know. You could take her in a sense and let her go. Wow, no, you know. She's really a great riding horse for children. But on the other hand, she was very uh, spoiled. She was like a princess. Like a princess. For example, Shelig had to be hand-fed and would only agree to eat food that was served directly into her mouth. Otherwise... She would not eat. She would not uh, fight about it. She was just not eat, you know. With Shelig now under her care, Odaya could combine her two greatest passions. I love horses, and I very much love to work with children, and children were coming helping. They got up in the morning. They went at six to pray Shachrit. Mm -hmm. Seven, they came to help in zoo. Mm -hmm. And uh, seven thirty, they went to school. In the afternoons, Odaya offered therapeutic riding lessons. But I could it couldn't have everyone in there. There were a lot of children who wanted to ride, and also not everyone could afford themselves. Like even we did it very, very, very cheap. But there were big families who couldn't afford themselves. So Hodaya designated one afternoon a week for those who couldn't afford private lessons. She even invented an incentive system. Whoever came and helped out at the zoo and with the horses got a little note. A little petic with with the. A drawing of uh, animals on it. Four of these IOU cards were worth 10 minutes on Shelig's back. It's really funny, like even today, there are children, like I, my children, it's 14 years back, you know. They come to me, they say, you know what, I still have notices. You owe me writing. It wasn't just Odaya and the children who adored Shelig. Some of the IDF soldiers stationed in Itzarim fell in love with her as well. One of them, himself a settler from Tkoa in the West Bank, even stayed in touch with Odea, calling every now and then to check up on Shelig. He saw her walking with children, so he was like, wow, and he was so excited about her. Now, a war zone like Nitzarim doesn't exactly lend itself to the kind of serenity you'd normally associate with therapeutic riding. But even in that, Shelig was unique. One day, Odea was giving a lesson with Shelig. And I had a really small child, like even not two years old, sit on her and other children standing around her. And suddenly we hear, okay, like something like that. The rocket landed just yards away. Odea's gaze flashed to Shelig and she saw every muscle in her lean body tense up. I saw her freezing, like saying, just take off this child, you know. The second Odea took the toddler off her back, Shelig reared, neighing and wildly kicking her front legs in the air. She really, like, got herself together not to jump right away because she knew there is a little child on her back and she would throw him off, you know. As little moments like this demonstrate, the veneer of carefree fun was frequently punctuated by the reality of Netzarim being an isolated settlement in the middle of the Gaza Strip. An entire regiment of soldiers was deployed to protect its residents. 
but the attacks persisted. And as they did, the decades-long debate surrounding the Israeli presence in Gaza intensified. The heavy price, in terms of both blood and resources, prompted more and more people to talk of a unilateral withdrawal from Gush Katif. With time, those voices only grew louder. I think till the last day, we didn't believe that it would happen. You, you don't believe it. It's like you, you think about the world you live in and someone will tell you it won't exist. It, it's just something you can't, like, uh, imagine. But the disengagement plan marched forward, and a date, August 17th, 2005, was set. Things were getting real. But they even received a notice from Sela, the ad hoc governmental agency set up to coordinate and implement the eviction. They will send us a transportation for horses and sheep and goats, which we have to pay. But prices, wow, 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 you know? And then they are ready for three weeks to keep these animals. You have to pay for every day a huge sum. And after three weeks, if you don't take them, they will sell them. This is what will be done, you know? Or you find yourself a private solution. So I knew I have to save the horses. Then, out of the blue, Odea got a phone call from that IDF soldier who would call her periodically to check up on Schelling. And he said, if it comes to they drive you out of Netzarim, I help you with the horses. The official position of the Gush Katif leadership was that the evil edict of the impending expulsion would somehow, in the very last minute, be averted. They therefore instructed the residents not to pack up their homes or make any kind of preparations to move. Instead, they said, people should focus all their energy on prayer and advocacy. I left everything till the last day. The day we had to leave, it was the Monday, the Sunday. I did writing for all the children, all the children. I did them writing. And I asked, I asked our Ayorav, because the policy was not to take anything apart. But I, I said, well, I want to have them out the evening before. The rabbi of Nitzarim gave Hodeya a special dispensation for an early evacuation. The IDF soldier who contacted her came and carted the horses away to a farm on his West Bank settlement of Tkoa. Sunday evening, he came and took the horses. Twelve hours before. But the fate of the other animals remained uncertain. Hodeya went to bed not knowing what would happen to them, to her family, or to the community as a whole. But she did know one thing. At least her horses were safe. We went out. We went out. We were taken out. And you remember when you came and you helped me get my stuff out, you know? Like, I was not organized at all. Like, I didn't ask anyone. I just stayed. Netzarim was the last settlement in the Gaza Strip to be evicted. Unlike many of the other communities where youth activists mounted strong resistance, in Netzarim there was almost no violence. Their leadership had reached an understanding with the army. The residents would comply with the evacuating forces, and in exchange, they would get an extra day to clear out their belongings. On August 22, 2005, the entire yeshuv congregated in the Netzarim synagogue 
for one final communal prayer. As they stepped out of their Betkneset for the last time, some knelt to the ground to fill their pockets with the sand of Nitzarim, vowing to return one day. Then, as a group, they got on buses, which took them directly to the Kotel, where they kept praying together. Only a handful of folks, among them Hodaya, were allowed to stay behind. They already closed the water and electricity. I had some more animals there, and I just I didn't want to leave. I stayed till Thursday. And it was the day they destroyed Nazarim. Just everything, you know, destroying, destroying, destroying. And like, how was tired? Ten, nine, nine minutes. Whole house, you know, two floors. You see the house of my friends, you know, like with your sister. They had, for example, the pomegranate tree. Years earlier, my sister had planted a pomegranate tree in her front yard. She planned to pick a few before she was removed, but in all the mayhem, had forgotten and called up Odaya to ask her to do so. If you just could pick some pomegranates for Rosh Hashanah from our tree. Hodaya, who was speechlessly watching the demolition, quickly ran over to where my sister's house once stood. The pomegranate tree was no longer there. There was already a big hole, you know, just a hole. Then I don't remember anymore, you know, like I was just so in like in a shock. I think for a month I was like... <sighs> Odaya didn't want to talk too much about the days and weeks that followed, but that it hides many layers of trauma. For starters, many of her other animals, the sheep, the goats, the rabbits, all taken away by the government subcontractors, didn't make it. She later found out that they had died of suffocation in an overheated shipping container. She was full of sorrow for her lost home, stained with the blood of some of her best friends, the month and a half following the disengagement is just sort of a black hole for her. Then one day she got a call. On the other end of the line was a man who lived near a farm in Tkoa, where her horses were being kept. He cut straight to the chase. I saw your horses, said the man, and it looks like they're about to die. The day after, I came, like, uh, with hitchhiking, and I saw her from far away. By the time Odea arrived, one of her horses had already died, but Sheleg was just barely alive. She was just skin and bones. Like, I have pictures I can show you. It's like, wow, 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 you know? Her eyes were like, like dead eyes. She turned around, she saw me. She turned her head. She didn't want to see me like that. She was so attached to me before. I could call her, she would come running to me from far away, you know. She was so injured. For her, it was like I was a traitor. I tried to speak to her and I, I, I started crying. I cleaned her and I brought her a lot of like goodies. She liked the nuts and dates and like I brought her all kind of things she likes. She was like, okay, you know. The former soldier who voluntarily took the horses in was full of good intentions. 
And Hodea stresses that she harbors no ill will towards him. But I didn't understand. I didn't know. He was not there. She later learned that he had put her mares in an enclosure with a bunch of other horses and wasn't there to supervise. Those who were left in charge didn't really know how to care for therapeutic horses like Shelig. Like a little bit uh, wild youngsters taking care of the horses, so they didn't really know how to take care. Let's say like that. I told you, my princess, please bring me my plate and leave me alone. They put them there with other horses. They, they just had the, the hay in the middle of a big place with fence around and these horses wouldn't let that's what I heard afterwards they wouldn't let my mares eat at all when I gave them away at least Shalek she was even fat a little bit the veterinary said before like she's a little bit uh, you know a little bit uh, over but that was her luck because like this, the second one, she was not too fat, so she died. She was like starving there. At the time, Odea was temporarily living in the dorms of Ariel College with her two kids and was in no position to take in a horse. But she knew that if something wasn't done quickly, Shelig wouldn't make it either. I thought, what I can do to take her. So without really thinking it through, Hodea picked up and relocated once again, in order to be closer to her mare. I had to stay with her for hours, because she didn't want to leave me. She, she, she just didn't let me go out. So I promised her, I said, everything's fine, I come back, I'm here after every day. True to her word, Hodea came back every day, slowly regaining Shelig's trust and nursing her back to health. We had to really for four and a half months to to feed her and like vitamins. I got every special thing to get her again in shape. And after four and a half months, suddenly her eyes came back like to life, you know? And we said, wow, here, yeah, you see? Hodaya managed to rehabilitate Shelig, but her own life, which was put on hold, was still very much in turmoil. She didn't even have a permanent place for her and her kids to stay. I was afterwards moving, 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 because yeah. we didn't find so much our where to to live. Like I think they, thirteen times I moved since Gush Katif. Thirteen times. And each of those times, she took Shelig with her. She was always with me, like going with me from farm to farm. It was a heavy burden. In addition to dealing with arrangements for her and her kids, she also had to arrange transportation and a shed or barn for Shelig. But she never questioned it. Eventually, both Hodaya and Shelig wound up close to their old home, just a few miles east of Nitzarim. Hodaya found a place at a therapeutic riding farm in Enapsol, an Israeli agricultural village on the border of the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, many of the residents of Nitzarim, including my sister, had moved to a nearby community they were building from the sand up called Bnei Nitzarim, or Sons of Nitzarim. This gave many of the children of Nitzarim a chance to ride on Shelig once again. They came to to ride on the horse. They could again... It was a kind of closure for them. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. But Shelig wasn't getting any younger. She got already like 18, 19. 
she had a little bit the uh, problem. Old ladies, it yeah. starts, mm -hmm. and what to do with with my horse. That was very sad. Bnei Tsarim was setting up a little petting zoo, and Hodaya thought that this would be a perfect place for Sheleg, who was now already too old to be ridden, to live out her days. Surrounded by ducks, goats, and kids with sticky little fingers handing her apples, carrots, and dates. Truth be told, there is no climatic ending to this story. No final twist or shocking reveal. Just peters out the way most stories in life do. A short time after she arrived at the new petting zoo, Sheleg passed away. Odaya said goodbye to her dear equine companion and tried to move on with her life. She remarried, had another kid, and settled down in a small caravan in Givata Lumot. But like my sister, like many of their former neighbors, a picture of the Netzarim synagogue with its distinctive round shape still hangs in Hodaya's living room. And that makes a lot of sense to me. After all, for Hodaya, Netzarim was much more than just a home. It was where she first found her community, where her boys grew into young men, and where she bonded with a very special horse. Thanks to Shelig, Hodaya was finally able to combine her two selves, the nature-loving horse girl from the German countryside she had once been, and the devout religious Jew she had now become. And more than 15 years later, the memories of those days in Nitzarim with Sheleg are never far from her mind. Yochai Meital. Yochai also scored and sound designed this episode, which was recorded by Tony Hernandez at the Seltzer Sound Studio in Brooklyn, New York. This picture is a children's joke. Whatever they feel, that is Sernatzari. As always, Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Thanks to Ishai Ribo and Moti Steinmetz for giving us permission to use their song Nafshi, which you heard in the story. Thanks also to Lior Carmeli, Ezriel Kaufman, Oded Gadir, Aaron and Tmira Feinsilver, to our dubbers Shlomo Meital and Michael Vivier, to Esther Werdiger, who creates the beautiful artwork for our episodes, and to Wayne Hoffman, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, Joy Levitt. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under Israel Story. And while you're at it, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. All you have to do is go to israelstory.org slash newsletter. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Field, Skylar Inman, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Jeff Umbro from The Podglomerate is our marketing director. Marie Ruder, Clara Fug, Michael Vivier, and Alicia Vergara are wonderful production interns. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, stay safe, shalom shalom, and yalla bye.
הנה רתום מרכבות אלים, הנה רתום מרכבות נרות, הנה רתום מרכבות לוחם, מרכבות קשת, מרכבות לוחם, הנה מוביל צדיק, הנה מוביל רשע, לפי תנועה בחיים צוואר, לפנוף הרמה. זוכר הסוס מכל אשר רכבו עליו, האם הייתי פעם סוס? 